We'll hear argument next in Ayers versus Belmontes. Mr. Johnson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case concerns the constitutional sufficiency of California's catch-all Factor K instruction, which was given in the penalty phase portion of California capital cases and which directed the jurors to consider any other circumstance that extenuates the gravity of the crime, even though it is not a legal excuse for the crime. In this case, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held that this instruction violates the Eighth Amendment because it allegedly misled jurors to believe they could not consider so-called forward-looking evidence that did not relate directly to the defendant's actual culpability for the crime itself. In the State's view, the Ninth Circuit's conclusion is fundamentally flawed because it rests on an illusory distinction between different forms of character evidence in a way that is inconsistent with this Court's prior decisions in California or Boyd versus California and Brown versus Payton. In Boyd, this Court addressed and rejected a virtually identical challenge to the Factor K and concluded that this instruction did, in fact, allow jurors to consider non-crime-related evidence. Specifically, it allowed the jurors to consider evidence of the defendant's background and character. There was nothing in the Boyd decision to uh, support the Ninth Circuit's distinction between different forms of character evidence. In fact, uh, Boyd implicitly acknowledged that the Factor K would, in fact, be understood to encompass Belmonte's good character evidence in this case because, for all practical purposes, there is no meaningful distinction between the nature of the background and character offered in Boyd and the nature Mr. of the Johnson, background. would you comment on the footnote on the, drawing the distinction with regard to the dance contest that the defendant won in that case between that's over here. <laughs> I'm asking the question. Uh, between the uh, uh, facts that occurred before the crime and facts that might have occurred after. Yes, Your Honor. In footnote 5, this Court addressed a, a contention raised for the first time in argument that uh, Boyd's evidence uh, might uh, be admissible under uh, Skipper versus South Carolina. And this Court distinguished uh, Boyd from Skipper for a couple of reasons. First, as uh, as Your Honor pointed out, um, the evidence in this case related to good character evidence, events that occurred before the crime itself, unlike in Skipper, which dealt with post-crime events. The Court also pointed out that the evidence in Boyd, his dancing achievement, um, his good character evidence in that case, was not offered for the specific inference that the evidence in uh, Skipper was offered. The Court in, in, in footnote 5 and, and in the opinion in general in Boyd, nonetheless, found that this evidence did, in fact, constitute good character evidence of the, of the defendant's present good character because it showed that his crime was an aberration from otherwise good character, or as Justice uh, Marshall put it in his dissenting opinion, that Boyd had um, redeeming qualities, which is a decidedly forward-looking consideration. And in, as I was saying, the evidence in this case and in Boyd have to be forward-looking, does it? I mean, I, I, I thought we've said so long as it can be taken into account in any manner, whether backward-looking or forward-looking. Haven't we said that explicitly? Yes, Your Honor. The, in fact, the Court has, uh, in Franklin versus Lina, said that they have not distinguished between different forms of character evidence. And I understand that, that in the past we've always discussed background and character evidence as sort of the same thing. Uh, in this case, however, the Ninth Circuit's conclusion does, in fact, rest on a distinction between different forms of backward-looking and forward-looking character well, evidence. Well, it was 
it was addressing itself to the fact to the words of the factor K instruction. Uh, how does post-crime prison conduct uh, reduce the seriousness of a previous crime? Um, it does not reduce. It does not relate to the seriousness of the of the crime at all. The, Boyd's dancing. Well, I mean, it it it, it has to to relate to the gravity of the crime under the words of factor K, doesn't it? Um, it, it would relate to the gravity, to, to circumstances that extenuate the gravity of the crime for purposes of a jury sentencing determination. And, and the point I'd like to make on, on that point is this, Your Honor. In California, jurors are well aware what their task is at a sentencing determination. In California, the guilt and the death eligibility determinations are made during the guilt phase trial. And the jurors are expressly told during the penalty phase trial that their lone determination, their one concern, is to decide between uh, uh, a sentence of death or a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. And in that light, the jurors are very well aware that their only determination in a California case is to make a moral normative determination, a single normal uh, moral normative determination uh, as to whether this man, this defendant, standing before them in this court today deserves death or life without the possibility well, uh, do, do of parole. You, do you have an instruction that uh, supports what you've just told us, that the, the jury is told they have to make a single moral determination? Is that what the court instructed the jury? No, that's it's instructed in terms of factor K. The, and I think you have to rest, rest on your, your argument that what we're talking about is the gravity of his crime for purposes of sentencing. I, I understand that argument. But then when you go on to uh, uh, make the argument you just made, the jury understands it has a single moral judgment. What, is there some specific instruction you can point to other than the factor K instruction itself? Um, no, they are. The, uh, and may, I may have been misleading. Uh, the jurors are expressly instructed that, is, that it is their duty to determine and their only duty to determine whether the defendant should receive life or death in parole. And, and or life without the possibility of parole. And in, in light of that determination, jurors naturally would understand that they could take into account anything that extenuated the gravity of the crime. Well, that's what they were told, right? They're instructed that the mitigating circumstances, including factor K, are merely examples, right? Yes. And this, it, yes. In, in May I ask you about that? This, this case is unusual because it has that separate instruction that uh, the mitigating circumstances are merely examples, and you should pay careful attention to those, but you may, but you may rely on other mitigating circumstances. May, may I ask you, would it have been constitutional if the judge had added a sentence at the end of that instruction which said, however, you may not consider anything mitigating unless it extenuates the gravity of the crime? Um. It would have been constitutional to the extent that it would have allowed the jurors to give some use whatsoever to Belmonte's proffered evidence in mitigation. And uh, th that's what this Court's uh, uh, prior cases, has, in particularly the various Texas cases, have said that jurors must be given an avenue to make use of the evidence. In California, I'm not sure you've answered my question. It would have been a constitutional addition to that instruction to say, but I want you to clearly understand that it is not to be considered mitigating unless it extenuates the gravity of the crime. Would that have been permissible? 
Um, it would appear to uh, — no, it would appear not to Because be that would have foreclosed consideration of the skipper-type evidence, right? It would have — well, it would foreclose consideration of all present good character evidence, I believe. It would, it would have foreclosed the consideration of Boyd's evidence, of Payton's evidence. So then the question in this case is whether the jury might have understood Factor K to limit them to the consideration of factors that extenuate the, the gravity of the crime. Well, the, the, uh, yes, the question is whether the, the jurors would reasonably understand the instruction to, to preclude the consideration of constitutionally rel- relevant evidence. This Court in, in Payton said that it was not unreasonable to con- in conclude that evidence of remorse extenuated the gravity of, of the crime. So why wouldn't an instruction to the jury along the lines of Justice Stevens's hypothetical have been perfectly constitutional as extenuate the gravity of the crime that's interpreted in Brown versus Payton? Well, to, to the extent the jurors would have uh, likely understood that, that instruction in Belmonte's and in Payton to extenuate the gravity of the crime for purposes of their sentencing determination. Well, that, and that's what I thought your position was. Yes. You back off of it. And you say extenuate the gravity of the crime doesn't relate to anything that, that's after the crime. I would, have, I would have interpreted the phrase to mean anything that, that justifies you in giving a lesser punishment for the crime. That's precisely my argument. Well, then your answer to Justice Stevens should have been different. Well, if, and, and I apologize if I, if I was uh, misunderstood you think my the, question. the jury in this very case understood that, given the questions that were asked? Oh, yes, Your Honor. In this, in this case, uh, uh, um, there's certainly no reasonable likelihood uh, that the jurors felt precluded because, uh, as was previously discussed, first there was this additional instruction that, that, um, that supplemented the, uh, the other instructions in this case that made it very clear that the aggravating factors, the various factors listed in, in the standard instruction A through G, that, that those were the, the — they could only uh, rely on those to, for, for aggravating factors, but their understanding of mitigating factors was not limited. In fact, they were expressly told that, um, that the previous factors were merely examples. What about the, what actually went on? I mean, the jury first came in and said, what if we can't decide? Can we decide by majority? And then the, the question was asked that seemed to indicate the jurors' understanding that we take all those factors that you told us about and we um, just take those factors into account. And there were clarifying instructions asked by the defense that were not given. Well, there, to answer your questions, Your Honor, um, first, there was no indication at this conference that the jurors were, in fact, confused about whether they could consider any particular evidence as being mitigating. The conference itself was, was called to address, as you mentioned, the jurors' concern or the jurors' inquiry about the result, what would happen if they couldn't reach a unanimous verdict in this case. Well, that may be why they had the conference, but they got into the colloquy that Justice Ginsburg described, and the last, as I recall, the, the last reference to factors, whether aggravating or mitigating, uh, was simply in terms of the list or the listing, I guess the term was. Uh, so that the, it, it seems to me at least there's a fair argument on the other side of this case that the last reference that the, that the judge made to the jurors uh, with respect to aggravation or mitigation was to refer to a listing. The listing itself 
didn't have anything to do, as I understand it, uh, with the instruction that uh, you are not limited to the listed mitigating factors. So the concern is that because the last reference was to the list, that the list included factor K without embellishment, and that jurors tend to give, we've held, that jurors tend to give the greatest emphasis uh, to clarifying instructions or later instructions in response to questions. Isn't it a pretty good argument uh, that in this case uh, there's, there's a reasonable likelihood that the jurors went back to their task uh, thinking that they were limited to the list? Respectfully, no, Your Honor. And the reason why is... Uh, well, I, I'm I, not necessarily saying that's my position, so you don't have to be respectful to me about it. Just I'll be respectful anyhow, Your knock, Honor. Knock it down <laughs> if you can. Um, be respectful anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the point is, with, with this instruction conference, there, uh, the, the, an argument that, that this reference to the listing reflected some unconstitutional or constitutionally restrictive view presupposes that the jurors reasonably would have misinterpreted the meaning of the factor K. And there's nothing in, there, in, in any of these questions to put anybody on notice that, that, that they had any such concerns. Well, except for the language of factor K itself. And, and uh, uh, if, with, without some embellishment, uh, isn't it a bit of a stretch to think that factor K goes as far as skipper evidence? No, Your Honor. It's, it's not a, a stretch at all because any, any evidence relating to the defendant's background and character, his present character in court, could be seen as extenuating the gravity of the crime for, for sentencing purposes. Well, ca- and California others- itself recognized that there was a problem here of jury confusion, and now they have amended the, the provision so that it would be clear to any juror. That's correct, Your Honor. In, in People versus Easily, the or maybe well, maybe they thought that was a problem of Ninth Circuit confusion rather than uh, jury confusion. I mean, having that opinion in front of them, you would think they would amend it, of course, to, to prevent that kind of uh, decision again. Well, they, what they were doing was certainly a prophylactic measure here. Um, to they, they recognized that perhaps there might be some uh, concern of confusion, and so they wanted to to uh, forestall any chance of that happening. Um, but notably, uh, this case um, and and this case and no other uh, California Supreme Court case has found that the factor K instruction, the the pre easily version of it by itself did uh, mislead the jurors. In fact, the, the Supreme Court in this case came down 7-0 in support of the conclusion that the jurors were properly uh, told about the... Where does this factor K come from? What was the source of it? The factor K, um, as the, the entire standard instruction given in these cases, recites verbatim the language of the uh, California uh, statute, which is California Penal Code, Section 190.3, and interestingly enough, the Cal- not only the California Supreme Court, but this Court implicitly has have both said that, that, that not only the, uh, the California statute, but the, the, the instruction, this standard instruction upon which, which is based on the statute, do allow consideration of all relevant mitigating factors. In, in fact, as, as far back as 1983, in this Court's California v. Ramo 
Bureau's this, uh, decision, this Court stated, albeit in dicta, that the factor K and, or, or that this standard instruction would allow consideration of background and character evidence. And, in fact, the, the Court stated in footnote John, 20. Johnson, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to be sure that you answered your — you stick to your answer to my question earlier. Okay. Because you, I think you changed your answer after Justice, the Chief Justice and Justice Scalia suggested you might have made a mistake. Are you, is it your position that it would be constitutional to instruct the jury that you may not consider any evidence mitigating unless it extenuates the, the gravity of the crime? Yes, Your Honor, because, because the jurors would, even, even if that instruction were given, the jurors would understand that, that an instruction that extenuates the gravity of the crime would encompass uh, any relevant character evidence. And this Court has, has made these determinations all the time. Is, That's is that answer consistent with the position of defense counsel who said he would not insult the intelligence of the jury by suggesting to them that the religious conversion of the Defendant did not extenuate the, gra- the gravity of the crime. No, Your Honor. Um, what the what the counsel actually said was was that the defendant's religious conversion did not provide an excuse for the crime itself, and and in in fact that uh, that that argument was itself echoing the language of the factor K instruction, which of course right. uh, directs the jurors to consider any other circumstance that extenuates the gravity of the crime, even though it's not a legal excuse for the crime. And so uh, counsel was dovetailing his uh, very effective argument with the, with the instruction itself. Um, and, and what's significant here is that, like in Peyton, like in Boyd, this case involved virtually all of uh, Belmonte's back, uh, um, penalty phase evidence, and the, the entire main thrust of his argument to the jury was that he could not make it on the outside, but he could fit in the system and contribute to society in the future if given a chance on the inside. And, again, as was true in Boyd and Payton. If that were true, would that have extenuated the gravity of the crime, if he could get along in prison? Yes, for purposes of uh, jury sentencing determination, absolutely, because it would be viewed as good character evidence. And juries would clearly understand that what he did in the future in prison would extenuate the gravity of the crime. Yes, Your Honor, because in light of everything that's been, been said and done in this trial, as the Boyd Court noted, jurors do not parse instructions for subtle shades of meaning. They understand instructions in a common-sense manner and in the, a The prosecutor didn't object to any of this mitigating, uh, mitigation evidence that was submitted by the defendant, did he? The prosecutor objected to none of this evidence, and, in fact, the prosecutor in closing statement argued that the, not only could the jurors consider Belmonte's forward-looking prospects, but the jurors should consider those prospects. So in, in this case, what well, we have — Well, the prosecutor's closing was, was schizophrenic because he said, but really, this shouldn't matter. He acknowledged it was something that, that this argument was something that was proper for consideration, but however, he argued that the evidence of Belmonte's religious conversion, which happens, you know, and, and then lapsed immediately before he committed the, the murder in this case, was very weak evidence, but he did nonetheless tell the jurors that they could consider Belmonte's prior character as bearing on his present character now. But didn't he go beyond saying it was weak? He did say that, but didn't he say that? That he doubted that it fit within K? 
Yes. He, he's, yes, the, the, the prosecutor first stated that, that the factor K was a catch-all, a true catch-all. So, so the prosecutor, I take it, would have answered Justice Stevens' question uh, the, the, the other way. The prosecutor would have said, well, no, this probably uh, would not be understood by the jurors uh, to, uh, to, to refer to the, the gravity of the offense. No, Your Honor, because in the, pre, in the, in the previous page, the, the prosecutor did state that it was a catch-all, uh, uh, you know, which by implication incorporates everything. But, and the prosecutor's argument that I'm not sure if it fits in there signifies that there, that not that the evidence, that, that such evidence could not be considered as mitigating as a, in a general matter, but that just that the religious evidence in this case was extremely weak to the point of having, as a practical purpose, no mitigating value. The prosecutor followed that comment. I'm not sure it fits in there in the next breath with it's something the effect of it's, it's no secret that Belmonte's uh, uh, religious uh, evidence is pretty shaky here and went on to, uh, to conclude that. But then in the next breath he said, but nonetheless, this is something that's proper for you to consider. Um, and, again, reasonable jurors hearing this, be, having been given the instruction here, would reasonably interpret this, uh, all of this evidence, as something they could use to extenuate the gravity of the crime. Um, and, and particularly in this context, because like in Boyd, in addition to this uh, factor K, the, the standard instruction directed the jurors to consider all the evidence, the first factor of the enumerated factors, A through G in this case, uh, told the jurors that they should um, that they should focus on the, the, the that the first thing to consider was the ground or the, the circumstances of the crime itself. The final uh, factor, therefore, that any other circumstance that extenuates the gravity of the crime would clearly be understood to to relate to matters outside the crime itself. Um, and to the extent that there was any uh, ambiguity about the, the, the meaning of that in this particular case, the argument by counsel, the additional instruction here, um, uh, clarified that to the point that there's certainly no reasonable likelihood that the jurors uh, felt that they were constrained in considering any mitigating evidence in any way they thought fit. Mr. Johnson, when I asked you about the derivation of Factor K, you gave me the California statutory site. But is, is there, does it come from any model code? Does any other state have such a provision? How widespread is it? Oh, the, the, the actual wording of this, instru uh, this uh, instruction? How many states have an instruction that talks about extenuating the circumstances of the crime? Um, I'm not sure, Your Honor. I'm not sure. I know that this, that this instruction itself came from the statute, which in turn uh, was, was adopted from the California Briggs Initiative in the 1978 uh, statute. Um, I'm not aware of any, of any uh, other states, there may or may not be, who have adopted the, the, the same statutory model that California has. Which California hasn't had it since 1983, right? Pardon me, Your Honor? California hasn't used this instruction since 1983. That's correct, Your Honor. After, after people be easily, the California Supreme Court augmented the instruction. So is this a one-of-a-kind case? I mean, you said in your brief that the Ninth Circuit decision threatens many other valid California death judgments, but <clears throat> these would all have to be uh, rather ancient cases. Yes, and unfortunately, there's there's several of them uh, that are still being litigated. I've done research on this issue, and um, as of this date, uh, 
I can't give you an actual, an absolute number, but I believe there is approximately 15 cases pending like this one that involve the factor K instruction, this, this factor K instruction that involve evidence of, of so, somehow future looking evidence, which all character evidence, frankly, is future looking. And that or, wouldn't wash out on the other grounds? Right. That, and that are still pending and that are, unlike uh, Peyton, are not governed by the AEDPA. You're saying those convictions are more than more than 23 years old? Yes, Your Honor. Unfortunately, there's there. Uh, I believe all of them are, are being litigated now in the federal court system in California. Um, if you have no further questions, I guess I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Um, Mr. Moltop. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Here is respondents' 60-second nutshell summary of our core position. This case does not turn on the Constitution of Factor K standing alone. Rather, it turns on a straightforward application of the Boyd test to the unusual, unique circumstances that occurred during the arguments, instructions, and deliberations at the penalty trial of this case. Here are the two key components of our claim. During arguments to the jury, both counsel conveyed to the jury that Belmonte's evidence of youth authority religious experience was not covered by Factor K. However, both counsel uh, suggested to the jury that it should be considered anyway. Now, this is unusual because of all, of all the things that the district attorney and the defense counsel disagreed on, this was one that they did agree on, and it's likely that the jury would have taken note of that. The case then proceeded to instructions and uh, deliberations. The jury came back to court, announced that they were deeply divided, perhaps with a majority favoring life. The turning point occurred when one juror, Juror Hearn, requested judicial confirmation that the specific list of factors previously given was the only base, was the only framework within which the penalty decision uh, could be made. At that point, the trial court had a constitutional obligation to disabuse Juror Hearn and the rest of the assembled jurors of that misapprehension, and at the very least, to re-instruct the jurors that the enumerated factors were merely illustrative and not exhaustive and instruct the jurors that the jury had to consider all of the mitigating evidence. The trial court did neither, with the result that the jury all too likely returned to its deliberations with the belief that the only factors, the only matters they considered, could consider were those encompassed within the enumerated factors and believing, based on counsel's prior arguments, that factor K did not include the youth authority, uh, religious experience evidence. When did the defense counsel say that this evidence did not fit within Factor K? Your Honor, um, it occurred in argument. My counsel, esteemed uh, co-counsel, will give me the exact page, but it occurred in the context. The context during the prosecutor's argument, uh, the prosecutor uh, said to the jury that, I suspect, and then he, uh, for, for emphasis, said, I can't imagine that you won't be told that the religious conversion evidence doesn't fit within factor K. And at that point, 
he expressed reservations, doubts as to whether it did fit in factor K or why any other factor. Why does that matter? Because the jury was told that the factors were merely examples of the mitigating evidence they could consider. Okay. I'm more than happy. It probably didn't fit into factor H either, but it doesn't matter. Well, it has to, it, it, if it, oh, Your Honor, the, uh, calling your attention, or you've called my attention to the instruction that, uh, said that the, said in the prior, uh, set of instructions, or in the general set of instructions, that the enumerated factors were merely illustrative. Now, that instruction had a cloud of confusion surrounding it because, uh, the way it was phrased was, the court said, the mitigating factors that I've expressed to you are illustrative. There was no list of mitigating factors. There was only a single list, unitary list of factors that could be either either aggravating or mitigating depending on the jury's decision. The instruction that you're referring to, Your, Your Honor, was a uh, was the result of the trial court denying some and granting some parts of the special instructions requested by the defense. And so when the trial court said to the jury, the list of mitigating factors is illustrative only, I, I, we who know the background of this understand what the uh, point he was trying to make, but to the jury hearing it, they would think very reasonably, there's no list of mitigating factors. You said this case is, is different because both counsel told the jury that the evidence that you're relying on did not fit within factor K, and I'm not sure what you're referring to. Okay. Now, as to defense counsel, are you referring to what you quoted on page 9 of your brief, where he says, I'm not going to insult you, what you highlighted on page 9. I'm not going to insult you by telling you I think it excuses in any way what happened here. That's what you're, is that what you're referring to? That's one of the passages that I'm referring to, and it came as a direct response to, to the district attorney, in effect, calling out the, uh, the defense attorney. I can't imagine that you won't be told that this fits within factor K. So at that point, the defense counsel had to make a decision. Okay, either I have to argue that my skipper evidence is my square peg of skipper evidence has to fit in the round hole of factor K. Isn't he factor saying something K. very different there? He isn't, he's not saying this doesn't fit within factor K and he makes no reference to factor K. He says nothing about extenuating. He says excuses. Isn't that something very different, excusing the crime? Your Honor, um, this Court has used the terms extenuate and excuse as synonyms in Boyd and in Payton. If you were arguing this to the jury, would you have said, you know, uh, my client earned a position of responsibility on the fire crew that patrolled the Sierra foothills, and therefore that excuses the crime that you found that he committed here? No, no. Uh, the, the same. I, I don't see anywhere in Mr. Schick's uh, statement, at least in 165 to 170, where he says what you said he said. And I, maybe he says it some other place, but I'd like a reference to it. But I. What I have him is saying is he says, for example, several times, the presence — I don't suggest that the, that the presence of religion in itself is totally mitigating. Well, it certainly wasn't in this instance. I, I gather I'm right. Am I right in, in thinking that all this religious conversion took place before he murdered the girl? 
So this is not a case of you're trying to get some evidence that took place after the crime. That's right. And, and for that That's reason. right. Then maybe it does more easily fit within Factor K. The, the prosecutor told the jury they should consider it, or they could. The judge told the jury they could consider it. He sounded it. He says you take it. This is an example. He says it's an example in Factor K. Maybe he's wrong, but they certainly likely think they can consider it. And Mr. Schick doesn't say it's not in Factor K. At least I don't see it. That's why I'm asking. You see, Your Honor, the, the whole point of Factor K is, is there evidence that's an excuse for the crime? And if we're — No, no, I know the point of Factor K. I'm, I'm trying to be absolutely certain before thinking — Right. He didn't say it, but I've made every effort to get from you the place where the — where the defense counsel says, jury, I agree, you cannot put this into Factor K. Okay. And, and Your Honor, looking at it in context, given the district attorney's argument, the district attorney says, I can't imagine you won't be told that it doesn't — that it — that it doesn't fit within Factor K. So the defense attorney gets up and says, I'm — I am going to tell you that it doesn't within — fit within Factor K. It doesn't — Okay. He says that is where? When he — when he says, Your Honor, it doesn't constitute an excuse in any way. It doesn't constitute an excuse. It doesn't excuse in any way, Your, Your Honor. And we — as a matter of semantics — But in a sense, that's — that's right. Uh, just like remorse. Remorse doesn't excuse the crime. It's a consideration that you take into account in assessing the gravity of the crime for purposes of punishment. Okay. Your Honor, this is a uh, uh, a point of perhaps semantics, but the — by the time you get to penalty phase, there's, n- there's nothing to excuse the crime in the sense of self-defense or not guilty by reason of insanity. The only thing — In any way. He does say in any way. Where? Not, um, Sorry. It's on page 9 of your, of your brief. Thank you. Thank you. Italicized portion. It's on 166 of the Joint Appendix. Thank you. Um, and if the uh, — if, if trial counsel was trying to make the point that, well, it doesn't constitute a legal excuse, but it does constitute a partial excuse or some kind of mitigating evidence under this factor, he would have put that in there. The clear import from the context here is that defense counsel was not trying to sell the jury a position that was on its face untenable, but rather to acknowledge that it did not fit within the excuse the gravity of the crime factor. Only, only you if you think anyway. that, that excusing the crime and extenuating its gravity are one and the same thing, which, which I don't really think. Well, Your Honor, there's two res- I'd like to make two responses to that. First of all, this Court has used those terms interchangeably in Boyd and Payton with respect to mitigating evidence. Second of all, let's, as, a, as a practical matter, uh, we have a defense attorney arguing a case to a, a jury in a Central Valley, California uh, county. And if the defense attorney has the choice between two synonyms, one which is used in common parlance, excuse, and one which is not used in common parlance, extenuate, it hardly constitutes an ex- a, uh, uh, a defect or concession on his part if he were to say, this does not excuse the crime in any way. That's plain speaking 
to a jury. That, and what, it, what, what he — But wouldn't a jury think all this evidence must have some purpose? The only purpose it could have is to, is, is to propel us toward life rather than death. I mean, the, the bulk of the evidence at the sentencing phase, wasn't it, was how he behaved when he was a prisoner before. Your Honor, not um, — uh, that's, that's not um, exactly what happened at penalty phase here. This is not a case like Boyd, where all the evidence was, was background and character evidence, and it's not a case like Peyton, where the only evidence was a post-crime conversion. This case involved a mixture of evidence, where first there was the, uh, the grandfather who testified to what a bad upbringing he had, traditional uh, background and character evidence. The mother testified to her undying love for her son, traditional uh, evidence. Friends testified to his good characteristics. And then at the end, there was a clear segment that related to his good performance in youth authority and his religious conversion. So it was only a, it was a partial part of, partial part of the uh, penalty phase presentation, but it certainly wasn't the entire presentation as it was in Boyd Even and Even so, there was, there was extensive testimony about his prospects for doing good in a prison set. Oh, certainly, Your Honor. And the jury must have thought there's some reason why the judge allowed that evidence in. And what reason could it be other than to show that if he is given life, he will be a good prisoner? Your Honor, um, that's a very logical, sensible thing for the jury to have thought. And now I'd like to drop the second shoe of the key components of our claim. The first shoe was the arguments of counsel that we've discussed the various permutations on. The most likely so the jury began deliberating based on the instructions and the arguments that they, that they had had. Um, and it's entirely likely that when the jury was favoring a life verdict during the first part of their uh, deliberations, uh, uh, Belmonte's prospects for good behavior in prison and contributions were, were part of the debate. When Juror Hearn asked for judicial clarification not clarification, confirmation of a very specific view that only the enumerated factors could be considered in the penalty phase deliberations. The jury and the trial court assented without qualification to that. At that point, the jury would have very likely thought the trial court, who uh, holds a position of great deference to us, much more than uh, most other authority figures we have in our life just told us what the marching orders are here. This is the framework for decision. Now, what happened during the, during the trial is the defense, and I'm suggesting what the jury might have thought in relation to your question, that the defense attorney was taking his best shot for his uh, client, um, uh, pushing the envelope, maybe went over the top a little bit, but defense attorneys do that. The prosecutor uh, was being a very decent stand-up kind of person, and, uh, but right now, when we get down to the business of making the decision, we have to follow the rules. And the rules are what, the just, are what uh, Judge Giffen just, uh, just confirmed to us, that we are limited to the enumerated factors, and factor K does not include the skipper evidence because that was explained to us by, by counsel. 
I would like to uh, — Before you move on, well, Counsel, don't you, you, don't you have to address uh, the Teague question a little bit? You, you, you're entitled to this new rule adopted by the Court of Appeals only if it was dictated by precedent at the time the judgment became final. And isn't that kind of a hard argument to make in light of the, our subsequent decision in Brown versus Payton? Your Honor, I don't see um, — as to the first part of Your Honor's question — um, I don't believe that there's any new rule whatsoever in the Ninth Circuit opinion. It's a straightforward application of, of Boyd to the totality of circumstances that occurred. Of Boyd? It's a straightforward application of, of Boyd? Yes. The Ninth Circuit began with Boyd, and it uh, went through all of the proceedings at trial and concluded that there was a reasonable likelihood that the jury didn't consider skipper evidence. Uh, and th- that's what we're asking this Court to do, the exact same applying the Boyd test to the rule, the rule of decision that was clearly established by this Court as of 1986 and reiterated and expanded by this Court in 1987 with Skipper. Yeah, but what, what has to be clear if, uh, under Teague is not just the rule, but the rule's application in circumstances like this. There are a lot of rules that are clear, but if Teague means anything at all, it it has to mean that you should have known that in this case the rule would produce this result. So it's not enough to say that there was a rule. There are a lot of rules out there. But the question is whether the outcome should have been clear at the time. Isn't, isn't that what Teague means? Certainly, Your Honor. And applying, because when we, when we take a look at Penry 1, uh, this Court said, in response to a Teague argument by the Attorney General, this Court held that Penry got past the threshold Teague issue because of at the time of the finality of his direct appeal in 1986, the rule was well established that the sentencer may not be precluded from considering relevant evidence in mitigation by Lockett, Eddings, and others. So if that was a firmly established rule as of 1986. Well, Henry was considerably tightened by the subsequent decision in Graham versus Collins, though. Graham, Graham v. Collins was an AEDPA case, as was Peyton. So we have a very, very different standard of review. And if I may, Your Honor. Well, I know Peyton was an AEDPA case. But it nonetheless concluded that it was not unreasonable for the California Supreme Court to read Instruction K in a way that allowed this evidence to be considered. And I would have thought if it was not unreasonable to have that reading, that the contrary reading that you're proposing and that the Ninth Circuit adopted below could hardly be said to have been dictated by existing precedent. Ah, well, the — our position in relation to that is the direct quote from — uh, direct quote from Peyton itself, in which the court said that, assuming the California Supreme Court was incorrect, Peyton nonetheless loses. Here we're arguing that the California Supreme Court was incorrect, and therefore, Belmont should was win. Because even if incorrect, it was nonetheless reasonable. And I'm just having trouble understanding how, if a contrary position is dictated by precedent under Teague, a reading 180 degrees, the opposite of that, could be regarded by this Court as reasonable. Uh, 
The unusual facts of this case are much stronger in favor of relief under the Boyd test than were those in Payton. Therefore, applying the the longstanding rule of Lockett and Eddings to the different and more compelling facts of this case, there is no reason, there is every reason to, to provide Belmonte's relief where it was denied to Payton. And there's no reason to believe that the California Supreme Court was being uh, incorrect but reasonable in to, to, to presume or find, based on Payton, that the California Supreme Court was being incorrect but reasonable in this case. Um, Penry could not have won uh, uh, his case uh, under the, uh, under the, uh, th that particular uh, analysis because the um, Texas Supreme Court. Graham didn't win his case. And Peyton didn't win either, but, uh, but we're operating under the, the prior, uh, prior regime. Um, so, um, I, I understand that um, the court is suggesting, I believe, that somehow Peyton is a sword in some sense to deny relief as to all California defendants under penalty phase instructional claims decided by the California Supreme Court, even under different facts and under more egregious circumstances. And I, uh, um, I, I'm, I may have be misinterpreting the court's argument, but I, I would argue that there are any number of scenarios, notwithstanding Peyton, that uh, would require relief under the pre-ADPA standards when you apply the, the test of void to all the circumstances of the case. Mr. Malta, one aspect of your argument I wish you would clarify, and that's in your brief, page 20, footnote 3. As I understand it, you are saying you are not challenging fact, the factor K instruction as excluding skipper evidence. Your challenge is limited to this particular case, Is, is that what you're saying in that footnote? Yes, Your Honor. I'm not here to refight the Battle of Boyd. Um, you know, I spilled um, tons of hours of time and printer's ink in an amicus brief in 1989, and I understand uh, the concept of uh, you lose. What we are arguing is that the Boyd test should be applied uh, to the circumstances of this case, and that factor case standing alone in a, in a case where the defendant relies on skipper evidence, uh, does not warrant relief by that fact alone. Here we have much more than that fact, which under Boyd does call for, for relief. I would like to give and, response. And the, the much more is the questions that the jury asked? The, the, the much more includes the arguments by counsel, which notwithstanding different different reasonably differing views of it, does put a context uh, on the uh, uh, put into context what defense counsel was arguing. Um, we have the confusion inherent in the uh, instruction that the court gave, the, the, the putatively proper instruction about them being illustrative rather than uh, exhaustive. We have the colloquy during 
the penalty deliberations, we have Juror Hailstone's follow-up question regarding the possibility of considering uh, the availability of psychiatric treatment, which was explicitly rejected and very likely confirming the message that had just been given to, via the answer to Juror Hearn's case that only the enumerated factors can be considered. Well, there is no evidence on that question presented, right? The reason that the possibility of psychiatric treatment couldn't be considered is because n- neither party had put evidence on that question before the jury. Well, Your Honor, you know that because you're the Chief Justice, but the people of San Joaquin County had no idea that that was the, uh, the reason, and if not explained... Well, it, it's a question of what mitigating evidence was put before the jury. The jurors couldn't consider that because it was quite proper for the trial judge to say you can't consider that because there was no evidence on it. And it would have been perfectly proper for the trial court to say you can't consider that because appended exactly the the explanation that you gave and the jurors would have understood that they had to consider the evidence presented but they couldn't speculate about other things. If at the crucial point in the proceedings the trial court had said, Juror Hearn, you do have to pay attention to those factors, but they're illustrative rather than exhaustive, and you must consider all of Belmonte's evidence. Please go back and deliberate. That would have cured the errors here. However, the error occurred when the, when the uh, uh, court didn't do that, and Juror Hailstone's question, the trial court's answer, could only have reaffirmed the misun- misimpression that the court return to the, uh, to, to deliberate with. I have a f- uh, just a few minutes. I would like to give respondents answer to Justice Kennedy's question to petitioner, paraphrasing somewhat. How does skipper evidence extenuate the gravity of the crime? And the answer is it doesn't at all logically, ethically, or morally. As defense counsel conveyed to the jury, the circumstances of the crime are what they are, and there's nothing that can be done about that. The circumstances of the crime are immutable and irreparable. The only thing that can be extenuated in a penalty presentation is the petitioner's culpability for, for the crime. And counsel argued that Petitioner's culpability was some ex- to some extent extenuated or mitigated because the evidence showed that there was no plan to kill the decedent when they went to her house. But we have said that remorse extenuates the gravity of the crime for punishment purposes under Factor K. Well, of course. And, that, and, that, and that, that's, post, that's post-crime. And, Your Honor, this pre- and post-distinction I don't believe has uh, is a relevant distinction. It's whether it's functionally related to the culpability for the crime, because uh, when, when a defendant expresses remorse... Oh, oh you think pre and, crime, pre and post uh, distinction has no bearing on this case? I thought that was really the linchpin of your argument. Um, no, Your Honor. It's, it's, it's that skipper evidence is a specific and different kind of... Uh, mitigating character evidence that doesn't extenuate the gravity of the crime, but it provides a different kind of reason for sparing the defendant's life. Um, there is... N- and yours is both pre and post, that is, you're referring to 
conduct that took place before this crime was committed, that is, his prior incarceration, and asking the jury to, to project that forward to say that's how he behaved in prison before he committed this most recent crime, and that's how he's likely to behave again. Well, all of the skipper evidence in this case um, hist- occurred as a matter of historical fact before the capital crime, yes. and which in fact gives it much gives it much more weight because it can't be suggested that he contrived his his good conduct after being arrested for a capital crime. But I'm going to make a broad statement here: there is no reported case in California where either a defense attorney or the California Supreme Court makes a text-based argument that skipper evidence extenuates the gravity of the crime because it's illogical and doesn't work. Look what the defense attorney did in Peyton. He argued that, well, of course you have to consider that evidence under Factor K because it's a catch-all. It's supposed to be inclusive. That's not a text-based argument. That's a circumstantial evidence kind of kind of argument. When we look at that, when we look at that phrasing of extenuating the, the gravity of the crime with its plain meaning in English and the distinction made in Skipper itself that Skipper evidence does not relate to petitioner's culpability for the crime, the jury is going to appreciate what the, what the attorney said, said, to, said to them, that the, that the youth authority religious evidence does not extenuate the gravity of the crime but has independent mitigating effect outside those enumerated factors. There's nothing, that's a perfectly appropriate position to take, no constitutional problem there, until during deliberations, the trial court confirmed that they could only consider the enumerated factors and could not consider non-statutory mitigation, the, uh, any other kind of mitigation, because that effect closed out consideration of the, of the skipper evidence. If the judge's uh, response to, to, to Juror Hearn was so misleading, why didn't counsel object to it if it was as obviously misleading as you say? Your Honor, it's like being stepping off a curve and being hit by a bicycle that you didn't see coming. This occurs in the middle of jury deliberations. Um, nobody expected a juror to ask a question of, of this type. And, of course, I'm speculating here. Um, but the trial court fielded the questions responded off the cuff, and the jury, jury went back. That's why you have counsel there, to help the court, when the court makes a real boo-boo. And if this was as obviously error as you say, one would have expected some, some objection from defense counsel. Uh, one could also have expected the trial court to say, let's take a minute to think about that. We're going into recess, and I'd like counsel's opinion about this, because this is a diff- difficult question. It's not a simple yes or no answer. Under ca- Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Johnson, you have six minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, in the remain- I'd like to briefly touch on the Teague issue. Um, at the time Belmonte's judgment was pending, there was no precedent that would have dictated the Ninth Circuit's conclusion here regarding the sufficiency of the Factor K instruction and, indeed, this Court's uh, subsequent holdings in Boyd and Payton bear out the fact that that it was at least that that that, that um, decision certainly was not dictated by precedent. Um, in Boyd, this court dealt with evidence of good character that 
was precisely the same as the evidence of good character here. The, the, Belmonte's evidence of, um, of having succeeded during a prior commitment and religious conversion that he might be able to help others in the future was good character evidence in the same way that Boyd's evidence of having won a dancing prize, of having helped children, of having helped artistic, uh, having artistic abilities was all good character. And there was certainly nothing in Boyd to suggest that there is any distinction, but even if there was, it would, it would not be one that would have compelled all rational uh, jurists to distinguish the two cases. And that's further buttressed, of course, by this Court's more recent opinion in Peyton, which found that it was at least reasonable for the State Court to conclude that Peyton's post-crime forward-looking evidence would be understood to fall within the, the Factor K instruction if it was re- at least reasonable for California to find that such forward post-crime forward-looking evidence would fit within the Factor K. Um, the Ninth Circuit's conclusion to the contrary regarding pre-crime good character evidence certainly was not dictated by precedent. Um, I'd also like to address uh, quickly in my remaining time Mr. Molthop's uh, arguments regarding the uh, jury or the, the argument of counsel and the jury questions. Um, again, Boyd counsels that, uh, that the, the relevant consideration is whether there's any reasonable likelihood that the jurors uh, uh, view the instructions in a way as to foreclose consideration of constitutionally relevant evidence. In this case, both the, the, the jurors were instructed with the factor K, as I've t- said. They were given the supplemental instruction that said that the, 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 the previous uh, listing uh, factors were only examples of some. And then both counsel clearly said that the jurors could and should consider this evidence. Is there some possibility out there that some juror might have misinterpreted this in a, in a, in a different manner? I suppose so, but there's certainly no reasonable likelihood, especially in light of the fact that, that Belmonte's evidence, uh, uh, virtually all of it was directed at this, this main thrust of the argument. Um, and just like in Peyton and Boyd, uh, for the jurors to have believed that they could nonetheless uh, not consider that evidence would have turned the whole proceedings into a virtual charade or a pointless exercise. Um, so far as the, the, uh, the questions during uh, juror deliberations, it's first important to recognize none of these jurors said anything to suggest that they were actually confused about whether they could consider any evidence offered. Their, their, their question, Juror Hearn's question, merely related to her, to, she wanted to confirm her understanding about the role of, of balancing mitigating versus aggravating factors under California law. And certainly the parties there if it would have been in a better position to realize if these questions somehow suggested some ambiguity. There was no objection there. Moreover, the, in the same conference, the, uh, the judge advised the jurors to review the instructions again, which, of course, included the factor K, and which, of course, included the supplemental instruction that said that their consideration of mitigating factors was not limited to those that had been listed, but those, those that had been listed were merely examples. If the Court has no further questions, I will submit the case. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. Thank you. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.